This morning, we are finishing up uh, the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And we're going to continue throughout the book, but today uh, we're looking at the seventh of the churches in Revelation chapter 3. So please give your attention to the reading of God's word. A reading from Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father, this morning we need, uh, we need you to come open our eyes. Give us ears so we can hear. We need to encounter you in a profound and deep way so that we would be awakened from our spiritual slumber, and our lack of zeal that you talk to us about here. We ask that you would uh, show us again, whether it's for the first time or for the hundredth time, the wonder and the beauty of all that you've done through your Son. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, this is, I said, the final letter Jesus sends to the seven churches in Asia Minor that we've been looking through in the book of Revelation. And we've been in this series about two months. And after today, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. But this letter to the church in Laodicea um, is very unique for one reason. Because if you've been here for the other six churches, you begin to remember something. In the first six letters that Jesus sends to these churches... He always has something positive to say about that church. A word of encouragement, even if he also has some criticism. He's always saying something that is encouraging, commending, even when he's very honest about the shortcomings and the need for the change. Yet this is the only letter in which there is no commendation. There's nothing good to be said. At no point does Jesus say to this church or to these Christians, you're doing well here. Every single thing that Jesus observes or points out about this church is negative. And we're going to see it is scathingly so. And here's another way to think about the church in Laodicea. It is a church that is so sick. The only way to nurse it back to health is for Jesus to stage an intervention. So he begins in verse 14 with these words. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, the words of the Amen, 
the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, he begins by telling them who he is. The words of the Amen, the Amen is not just a word that goes at the end of a prayer, but he's saying something about this. He's saying, when you say something along the lines of Amen, Amen, it means I agree with it. These are the words of truth. And Jesus is saying, the words I have are truth because I am the embodiment of truth. I am faithful and a true witness. And this is why in John 14, 6, he says, what? I am the way and the truth and the life. So to the church in Laodicea, he is saying, I will tell you the truth. Even when those things are hard, even when those things hurt. And essentially, Jesus comes along here and says, you are sick, you don't see it, you are self-deluded, but I have a treatment which will heal you if you let me. So let's take a look at this letter um, under three headings. Maybe this is a helpful way to organize it. I want us to look at the symptom. The symptom that Jesus describes. And then we want to look at his diagnosis. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the treatment he prescribes. So the symptom, the diagnosis, and the treatment. And whenever you look at a passage of scripture like this that are trying to diagnose what's going on here and look at a spiritual condition, I think it's easy for us to think of this as, oh, Jesus is just talking to that church some 2,000 years ago in this country far away in Turkey. But I think we have to ask ourselves these questions as we're looking at the passage and ask, is this also about me? Or to what extent? How much of this is actually true of me as well? And I think as we have that mindset, we'll get a lot more out of what God would have us to hear. But let's look at our symptoms here. What is the symptom of this condition? Because I think it's in verse 15. It's Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. With that, you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I mean, this is a sobering words from Jesus. There is something about this church, something about the works of these Christians that makes Jesus want to vomit, spit out of his mouth. The symptom he's describing here is lukewarmness. Lukewarmness. And what does he mean by saying, I want you to be either hot or cold? Because in this context, those words hot and cold are both good things here. You can be hot, you can be cold, but don't be lukewarm because that makes me just sick to my stomach. Now, and I think this is where the geography of the region is going to help us understand Jesus' words. If you've been following this series and reading the letters to the churches, often Jesus uses something that is very familiar with that region to help his message land. Because in this region here, the geography is Laodicea is part of a tri-city region in the Lycus Valley. And there's two other cities that are very connected to it's a, one is a city called Hierapolis. It's about six miles away to the north. And there's another city, one you may be a little bit more familiar with, called Colossae. The letter that Paul wrote to that city is called Colossians. You see? And those three cities created a tri-city region 
In Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, the Apostle Paul actually says, Greet the brothers at Laodicea and make sure they read this letter. And don't forget to read the letter I sent them. So they were trading letters. They were in fellowship together. One of the remarkable things about the city of Colossae was it was very famous for its crystal clear cold drinking water. And on a hot day, when you are parched, there is something incredibly refreshing about having a cold, clear glass of drinking water. But Laodicea didn't have a natural water source like Colossae. So they had aqueducts that built, they built to pipe in water from a great distance. So when the water often got to the city, it was very lukewarm, not very refreshing to the extent that some people often felt sick if it wasn't good water. The city of Hierapolis was famous for a lot of things, but it actually had many hot springs. People from the region came around because they believed it actually had medicinal benefits because they wanted to bathe in them because it was refreshing, relaxing, and healing. But you know what feels terrible about hot springs? When you go in a hot spring, and it's not very hot. You know that feeling when you go in a hot tub and you feel like, gosh, it's just not quite hot enough. It's just not that great, you know? There's nothing refreshing about it. It's just lukewarm. So what is Jesus saying when he's saying, don't be lukewarm? Imagine Jesus speaking to this congregation, telling them, I want this church, this community to be community to be a place of healing, rest, refreshment from what the world offers. A church that lets people experience the gospel. Jesus wants a church that invites people to experience what he offers. The kind of thing he says in Matthew 11 when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus wants his people to point people to the rest he offers, to embody all that he promises, and show the world what that looks like in their lives. But this church in Laodicea was not doing this. People weren't coming in and experiencing the fullness of new life in Jesus. Instead, you found a group of people who were claiming allegiance to Christ, But the community looked nothing like one redeemed by Jesus. And maybe you're thinking, you know, maybe a lukewarm person, a Christian, are we talking about hypocritical people? But I don't think that's what this is about. He's not talking about someone who's saying, I say and I claim to believe in Jesus. I'm a moral person, but then they go over to the side and do things that are illegal. They are cheating on their spouse, doing things in illegal ways. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. These people are not hypocrites. They're doing the things that they should be doing. There's no indication of hypocrisy. But there was nothing unique, remarkable, or attractive about this church. They were neither hot nor cold. It was lukewarm, and you did not find rest for your souls in this church. They didn't connect people to all that Jesus offered. You know, they were good at going through the motions of what a church should 
do. But there was no life change. It was just incredibly, incredibly dull. One of the best movies I saw last year was called The Banshees of Inishirin. Have you guys seen this? It was nominated for Best Picture. And the story is set in a small island village uh, off the coast of Ireland in the 1920s. And it centers on the friendship between Colm and Patrick, two people who were born in this village, who are best friends. Every day in the afternoon, they go to the pub to have a pint. And one day, out of the blue, without warning, Colm decides he doesn't want to be Patrick's friend anymore. He isn't going to go to the pub with him. He's not going to talk to him. He begins to ignore him. All the townspeople are like, what happened to you guys? How'd you get sideways? Are you having a row? Are you in an argument? You must have done something. And Patrick finally confronts his friend. He said, what did I do? Tell me what I did. I can apologize. Did I offend you? And Colm says, I just don't want to be friends with you. And he said, why? And his answer was, you are dull. I am not going to spend the rest of my life being with someone who is dull. I'm a musician. I'm a creative. I need life, and you are sucking me dry. The rest of the movie is all about how this plays out. It's hilarious, dark, all at the same time. But let me ask you this. When it comes to your life with Jesus, for those of you who claim to be followers of Christ, is your life just dull? Nothing remarkable, intriguing, inviting about your relationship with God. That's what it means to be lukewarm. Where there is nothing in us that shows other people of how enthralled and beautiful Jesus is. Why this is so important to you. Why this is so crucial to who you are. It's part of what makes you tick. And Jesus looks at this church in Laodicea and says, You guys, you are so lukewarm. It churns my stomach. So hard words. Those are the symptoms. Why is this so crucial? Look, think about the diagnosis here. Because if the symptom is lukewarmness, what is Jesus' diagnosis? What's his diagnosis? A little bit more on the city of Laodicea will help us a whole lot here. You know, uh, historians who have studied this region and this city make three pretty important observations about it that is helpful to us here. First of all, it was this financial and banking center. It was an incredibly wealthy city. It was so wealthy that when an earthquake leveled the city in AD 60, when Rome came in and said, let us help you rebuild this city. You know what they said? They said, we don't need your help. We can do it on our own. We can save ourselves. Imagine how wealthy you have to be that if our region was flattened by an earthquake and the federal government came in with money and resources for wildfire or flood, we would say, we're going to rebuild and take care of everyone by our own resources. That's exactly what they did. Incredibly wealthy place. 
It was also a fashion center, a textile center. So imagine it being Paris, London, New York, or Milan. These people were known for their incredible fashion. Because in that region, there were these sheaths with this black wool that people were able to make this textile out of that had this sheen. And they were known as the best-dressed people in that region. And lastly, it was a medical center. And their specialty was ophthalmology. And Laodicea produced a salve made from Phrygian powder that was supposed to heal any eye disease, to heal blindness. And this is, if you have that in mind, and you begin to hear Jesus' kind of ironic tone in verse 17, he says this, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, the, the church in Laodicea says the same thing the city was saying about itself. They're saying, we are rich. We're prosperous. We're well-dressed. We can heal ourselves. God must be blessing us. And Jesus says to them, you think you have absolutely no needs. But not realizing what? They are blind to the reality that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus comes to them and says, basically, you are self-deluded. I pity you. The reason I pity you is because you are actually, on the contrast, not wealthy but poor. You're not well clothed, but you're actually naked. You can't actually see, although you think you can heal blindness. I mean, what is spiritual blindness anyway? What is it? It's your inability to see that apart from the Holy Spirit, that you need God and his forgiveness and the work of Jesus in your life. And that these things are given to us by his grace and mercy. And there is no other hope for us. When you can't see that, the scripture describes that as spiritual blindness. Now, here's the thing. All these people in this church, if you gave them a test, like a written test about, well, are you saved by grace? Or are you saved by what you do? I'm sure they're going to answer that correctly. But what is Jesus trying to tell us here? He says, listen. I think he's making a very direct link to something that's pretty hard for us to hear today. That oftentimes being wealthy, being accomplished, have high achievement. Actually, there's a connection to those things and spiritual lukewarmness. He's saying those are the things that make you think you don't need Jesus. Because you don't really believe in the depths of your heart You need him. You may say intellectually, even as someone who's a Christian, I believe I'm a sinner. But in the depths of your heart, you don't feel like you actually are. Because everything seems to be going so well. We don't feel the joy and the hope and all that God's given us through Jesus. There's this link he's making with, here's the situation. You guys think you're rich, you're well-dressed, you can heal yourself. Everything is good. But the reality is, you are poor. You are naked. 
You can't heal yourself. And every self-salvation strategy you have has failed you. And we need to think about that. I mean, we live in North America, in one of the most prosperous societies in the history of the world. And worse than that, we live in Silicon Valley. We're supposed to change the world. We're supposed to fix ourselves. I've always been uh, intrigued when I visit other countries and other parts of the world and see Christians. They often have so much less than the life experience of what we have here. And yet, their faith is often so incredibly fervent. They're engaged in prayer because they realize they need Jesus so desperately. It is their only hope. They're so incredibly generous with what they have, and they don't spend everything they make on themselves, but they think about God's kingdom purposes, although they themselves, we would say, are impoverished. They don't feel impoverished. They feel rich. They feel generous because they're excited about what God's doing. They're excited to share their faith and tell other people how wonderful it is that God has done something miraculous. The church in Laodicea has become just like the culture around them. Lukewarm in so many ways. You know, um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter from Birmingham jail said this about our society some years ago. He says, there was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be intimidated, which is zeal. But their, excuse me, by their effort and example, they brought to an end to such ancient evil as infanticide and the gladiatorial contests. Things are different now. The judgment of God, however, is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Those are just some harsh observations he makes. Harsh observations. Is that us? Is that our community? Is that our church? So what are we going to do about it if it is? What's the treatment Jesus offers here? Look at verse 18. Jesus says, I counsel you. I thought it's interesting. He doesn't say, I command you. He comes alongside us and he says, let me give you my counsel. And he says, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And the salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I mean, he counsels us. He comes to us gently and he says, 
buy from me. You know, this buying idea was a very common word in Laodicea. They're good at buying lots of things. But Jesus says, you know the thing you need? You need to get from me. It's so reminiscent of Isaiah 55 in verses 1 and 2, where God says, come buy from me when you have no money. You don't need money. Come buy from me because I'm going to give you the things you need. Jesus is saying, you know what? I'm going to give you gold. I'm going to give you gold, purified gold. That's going to make you rich. I'm going to give you a robe that is white. And we know further on in Revelation 7, the robe that is white in Revelation is one that has been cleansed by the blood of a lamb. That's going to cover your nakedness, your shame, your sin. And I'm going to make you see Jesus is saying, you get this from me. That's the first thing. The treatment is about us going to him and getting things that will never perish, never disappear, never, ever fail us. And Jesus is saying, everything else that you're after in this world, it will fail you. The gold you have will tarnish. The clothing you have will be eaten by moths. The health you think you can generate in yourself will fail you. But buy from me eternal things. I want to give you something. That's the first thing you have to remember. You have to get it from him. The second thing Jesus says is important to get out of lukewarmness is that oftentimes our zeal for God, our passion, our joy and wonder is actually going to come through hard things. Consider the goal that's refined by fire, okay? And in verse 19, what does he say? Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline, so be zealous and repent. He's saying, those whom I love, he says, hey, I love you. And because of that, you're going to experience the discipline. Part of getting out of lukewarmness is probably going to have to involve walking through hard things with Jesus alongside you. I'm not going to talk a lot about this because David talked at length about this from last week when he looked at the church in Philadelphia. But again, Jesus says and repeats that here. The third thing we have to recognize here, we have to be open to his incredible love and let him in. One of the things that's amazing to me about this passage is Jesus is saying in the beginning, you make me sick. You, you make me vomit. And you think this means that he just wants to get rid of us. Tell us to go away and be far away. But you know what he says? Although I see nothing good in you that I can commend, It does not change the fact that I have a loving purpose for you. That I love you. That I want to draw near to you. And this is how his grace works. Because look at verse 20. He says, behold, look. You know, stop feeling bad about yourself, but look. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. And I will eat with him and him with me. In ancient times, 
to come into someone's home and eat with them, to be invited in, was to have one fellowship, friendship. You're saying there's a special relationship. It's not the same as every other relationship. You know, I realized this when I was living in Europe as a grad student. You know, it's like, it's a real privilege to be invited into someone's home. Uh, it's not something that happens every single day. And it's like the first invitation. Because you always know it's an American when they just meet you and they're like, oh, come over. It doesn't usually work like that, you know? That's the American way, okay? It's all good. But you begin to realize to be invited in with something very special. And Jesus is saying, I am here. Let me in. I want to sit with you. I want to eat with you. I want to know you. I want you to experience my love. And how do we do that? Because when we invite Jesus in, perhaps it's not just doing all the spiritual busy work of checking all the boxes off and making sure I did all the things to keep Jesus away from me and telling me what what I need to do or anything else. But how about you have fellowship with him? Not just tell him all the things you want to get off your chest. Not just to emote. Not just to tell him what you're worried about. But actually, how about to experience his love for you? Asking him, Jesus, I I want to experience you. I want to feel you. I want to know you. I want to adore you. I want you. And he says, when you do that, he's saying, I am so ready to come in and to sit with you. That's the invitation. You know, a lot of people read this passage and think, oh, I think it's uh, Jesus is knocking on someone's door, and this means it's a non-Christian there, and they need to just let him in, and he's going to come, and they're going to get salvation. I mean, you can use the metaphor in that way, but in the context of the passage, that's not what it's about. It's to Christians. And he's saying, Jesus is there. He's saying, let me in. Let me in. Because I want to come in and be with you. Because he's the one that says, you know what? I love you so much. Do you realize I was stripped so you could be clothed? I became impoverished so you could be rich. I was so zealous for you. I loved you so much, so intensely, that I came and gave my life for you and was raised to new life. And then he invites us to say, you know, all that I have received, gosh, that if you conquer, I am ready to share with you. I mean, I'm not exactly sure, again, all of this reigning on his throne. I mean... I'm still not exactly sure what this means. Maybe we'll figure it out by the end of the Revelation sermon series. But I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Jesus is saying, here, do you see the image? He is going to be with us. And he's inviting us up to sit with him on his throne and to be with him. This is a remarkable thing. And he's saying, this is available to every single person in this room if you are willing to let him in. He who has an ear, let him hear 
what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask that uh, today you would do something miraculous, that you would allow us to experience the beauty and the wonder of the gospel so that our lives would reflect your remarkable love to us, that you would fill our hearts with such passion and zeal that others would see and give you praise and glory and honor. Father, would you do this? Because we so desperately need this. We're tired of living dull, boring lives. We're tired of money not doing much for us. We're tired of chasing after all the things everybody else is and realizing it doesn't satisfy. Lord, uh, help us to meet you. Because you're ready to come in. You're knocking and... We ask that you would give us the grace and the faith to open ourselves to you. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.